Excuse me? Yes, you'll fix it. Here we go. Okay, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went and conferred with the chief priest and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Father, may this text hit us with the sobriety that it demands. And may it hit us as saved people with the joy that it produced to the glory of the name of Jesus, the only Savior who shed His blood for our sins. Amen. <clears throat> this passage this morning causes us to contemplate the reality of the depths of human sin, of Satan, and of God's sovereignty. I say that because now in this text, Luke turns the page to the machinery of Jesus' torturous death, which is the greatest sin ever committed in the history of the world. And to get all of it going was one of the most low-life acts ever. One of His chosen, out of hundreds, one of His chosen twelve. His intimate circle. One of the twelve apostles betrayed Jesus. And yet, that Jesus died in such a way was the foreordained plan of God before the foundation of the world. And out of that, out of His brutal death coming from the betrayal was the punishment for our sins. And that now is a great joy to everybody who has come to love Him and to know 
this Savior. You talk about a rich, complex, deep life here on earth. That's it. So let's turn to our text in Luke 22. First six verses and contemplate the divine intersection between the depths of human sin and Satan and God's eternal plan. And my prayer is that as we do this this morning, we will have God work a deeper hatred in our hearts for our own sin and a deeper hatred for demonic and satanic temptations in our lives and a deeper trust that comes from the strengthening of our heart in God's sovereignty over all things. Especially in what sin produces in our lives and in the pain and in the twist and the turns and the setbacks that we all the more will with Paul believe Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work mysteriously together for good. That is, to those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Okay, here we are. This is a huge week in the Jewish calendar. The week-long celebration of unleavened bread followed the day after Passover. And these two festivals, these two feasts, were almost always treated because they're so closely linked as one big, huge, week-long feast. The Passover, you know, is the yearly remembrance of Israel's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt where God instructed all the Hebrews, all of Israel, in all their homes to slaughter a lamb and they would eat it that night after having put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their houses so that the death angel who was coming by that night to strike dead every firstborn in Egypt would see the blood and pass over that house and that house. And then God instructed them in the law of Moses every year, like we do our celebrations of Christmas and Easter, He instructed them every year, celebrate this remembrance with this meal of your deliverance from judgment. And the next day in Egypt is when they started walking into freedom from slavery. And so, we look at this text. The Jewish leadership had been growing more and more resolved to do away with Jesus. For maybe up to three years, His popularity throughout the whole land of Israel had been growing. 
And then, a few days prior to this, He entered Jerusalem on a donkey with throngs of people praising Him as the promised King, the King of Israel. And then He entered the temple and He pronounced judgment on the temple and on the leaders after having turned over the tables of the money changers. And then Luke told us back in night. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do because all the people were hanging on his very words. So, in other words, they, Luke lets us know, were very cautious. I mean, they've got to be really wise on dealing with this Jesus character. And Jesus didn't hide. He added fuel to the fire by publicly telling a parable about the vineyard keepers that clearly pointed to the Jewish leaders, prophesying, they will kill me. In chapter 20, verse 19, Luke then says to us, Scribes and the Pharisees, excuse me, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour because they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So now, with Passover week at the doorstep here, Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are converging on Jerusalem for the festival. And this caused a deep resolve within the Jewish leadership to get rid of Him. Especially before He influences all these people flocking to Jerusalem. And so we read, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking, in other words, they're having meetings, counseling together, trying to figure out the plan. They're seeking how to put Jesus to death. For they feared the people. And then someone comes riding into town to help the Jewish leadership. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Satan was on the same team as the Jewish leaders. And then he lassoed one of Jesus' intimate associates. The point is that Satan, the same one as we saw back in chapter 4, who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and he felt it. He influenced, tempted, and overcame 
Judas. And so Judas willingly jumped into the opportunity to line his pockets with more money. Judas betrayed Jesus. He acted. He is responsible. And yet, the point is that Judas came under the influence of the spiritual personification of evil. Satan himself. Jesus' death is ultimately a cosmic battle between evil and God. And so here, Luke lets us know Satan is making his move. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went and he conferred. With the chief priests and officers. He went to the chief priest's palace. He sat with this council. And, and the officers are soldiers, are like the private police, the ones who are going to be responsible for arresting Jesus. And Judas had discussions with them on how this might be done. He went to the chief priests and the officers and conferred with how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. And so Judas shook hands. He consented. And then he sought an opportunity to betray Him to them. And here's the key. In the absence of a crowd. Judas is paid for his services. And Luke notes that the leadership rejoiced. That, that, that we're glad that's what that means. And no wonder, because all along He's been letting us know how much they feared the crowds. And then one of Jesus' close intimates comes and they see that's our opportunity to be able to get to Jesus secretly. Take Him away. The crowds won't know. So the transaction is made. And one of Jesus' personally chosen Twelve begins scheming, looking for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them. Now I want to flash forward, not in Luke, but in the Gospel of John for a few minutes. If you turn to John 13. At the beginning of John 13, we then read, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, in verse 2 says, during supper, when the devil had already 
put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John was there. He's writing this for us years later. Now, what happens next there in chapter 13 in this room is Jesus says, Judas, it's your turn. Put your feet up. And Jesus washes His feet also. And then He continues to speak to His close associates, saying in verse 16, Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, guys, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. And Jesus quotes that prophecy. has lifted His heel against me. That language in the psalm describes a horse's foot kicking in the head and killing somebody. And Jesus, in just a small group, there's 13 of them in there. Judas, that's what you're going to do. And the text continues. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you guys will betray me. The troubled in spirit language means Jesus started choking up. And all of His apostles could see it. They could feel His anguish. But they had no clue who He's talking about. And it makes you wonder though, how Judas' heart must have jumped out of his chest when Jesus said this. The eleven others were in shock. Quote, the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom He spoke. And Matthew says this, and they were sorrowful and began to say to Jesus one after the other, is it is it I? Lord, no one knows it's Judas. They're, s- they're not seated. They're reclining at the table. They're not sitting in chairs. Now they did their meal. They're reclining on their sides at the meal at the table. And it seems to be from what we get in John 
the table setting that was significant was that Judas was over here to my left, sitting right by Jesus. And on the other side was John, the Apostle, with his head up by Jesus' chest, the way that they would recline. And so I pick up with the dialogue in verse 22 of John 13. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. And one of His disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' bosom. And so, Simon Peter, who's further away, motioned to John. Ask Him. Ask Him who He is referring to. And so that disciple, leaning back, against Jesus, said to Him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is He to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Evidently, only John hears this. So when He had dipped the morsel, He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So Judas left. And he lurked. And he spied for when Jesus and the other eleven would leave the city, cross the Kidron Valley, and ascend the Mount of Olives to their camp. And then he got what he needed. And he hurried over to the chief priest and the secret police and said, okay, They're there. They're alone. I'll lead you. Now, what I want to do is ask two big questions for the rest of the sermon. What are we to make of verse 3? Then Satan entered into Judas. The first big question is this. Did Satan just come along and overcome a good Judas? 
Or was Judas already living in line with Satan? And Satan then decided, now is the time. And then the second big question is where in the world was God when this happened? Was He paying attention? Or maybe He was. And was He powerless to prevent this? What was God's role in the whole dominoes going down that Judas started off? From Herod to Pilate to the Sanhedrin to the soldiers to the nails to the whips. Where was God in the midst of all of this horrific sin that murdered Jesus? Those are the two questions. So let's go to the first. What are we to understand about Judas and the power of Satan? Here it is. Judas is not an innocent pawn when all of a sudden Satan comes on the scene and enters him. John lets us know in John 12, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was opening the door to sin and to evil influences by the decisions he had been making. There's an old saying, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. That's what Judas did. Judas was living with Jesus and the others. They were traveling camping out, hearing His closed-door speeches, not just public speeches. Judas had been sent out and he had cast out demons in Jesus' name. And all the while, he was not a lover of Jesus. He loved money. He was driven by the thought of what Money could buy me. And those thoughts he acted on. And those actions in him created a habit, and that habit created his character. 
He belonged to Satan. And he had a destiny. Now before we say, how in the world could a human being do what Judas did? Just think of all the scandal after scandals in the evangelical church. Just think of some of those with parachurch ministries or church ministries who from the church purchase five million dollar homes and have a closet full of $3,000 suits and drive $70,000 cars. Or as Randy Alcorn opens his little booklet on that table back there titled Sexual Temptation, this way, quote, Something terrible happened. The tense voice belonged to my friend who was calling from across the country. Yesterday, our pastor left his wife and ran off with another woman. I was sad, but not shocked or even surprised. I've heard the same story too many times. Many years ago, I spoke on sexual purity at a Bible college. Several students came for counseling. Rachel got right to the point. My parents sent me to one of our pastors for counseling and I ended up sleeping with him. Next day, I met Pam. Her story? I came to Bible college to get away from an affair with my pastor. End quote. Satan or demons don't just float around and spot a godly woman or godly man who have been resisting their flesh, feeding upon the Word of God and the promises of God, who have been bathing in Gospel grace and daily worship, and then all of a sudden, Satan enters them and they betray Jesus or commit adultery, or cheat and lie in their business to extract money from others. No, that's not the point of what we see here with Satan entered Jesus. But instead, He and those others have slowly unleashed their own sinful passions to become more and more desensitized toward God. See, here's the big picture. Satan does not take innocent people captive. Listen to how Paul lays this out in Ephesians chapter 2. First three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course 
of this world following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. So he just said, dead, you, Joe, were dead in sin. Living in the passions of our flesh, sinful natures. What he means there, you were fulfilling the desires that pop up out of the body and of your mind. And thus he says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, demonic realm. Satan does not is take innocent people like Judas and then drive him to do something he does not want to do. There are no innocent people. Satan, or demonic realm, have power where sinful passions are in control. That's why those who have been raised up with Christ, who still have a sinful nature, and those passions are there wanting to rise, but that's why believers who have been born again by the Spirit are those people who pay attention to the warnings of Scripture. Flee sexual immorality. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Paul writes, Two believers in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. Believers say, he's got an escape hatch. And they look for it. Judas was a lover of money. And he covered it with this facade of his relationship to Jesus. And then, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The root of how Judas could do that was because he was an unconverted man. He was still dead in his sin nature. He was not born again. 
He was not an innocent bystander when Satan entered him. The second big question is this. Okay? Where was God? Where was God when we read in the text, Satan entered Judas? Where was God when Judas actually went and willingly betrayed Jesus? Where was God in the midst of all the sin that followed the next day and a half? Now, in answering that question, we should always be very careful not to just shut the Bible and speculate. Well, maybe this. Maybe that. Because the only thing that counts really is what God Himself says about that issue. So, first, just think for a moment. I, I don't have time. I had tons of them to read. I just gonna, it would take too much time. There, there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament Scripture. Prophecies, predictions, Hundreds of years before Jesus will be arrested and spit on and slugged and murdered. And some of them to the detail of how it will happen. Hundreds of years beforehand. I mean, you do remember, we've already seen in Luke, Jesus says, have you not read the Scripture, the Psalm, the stone that the builders rejected? has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. He says it's right there. God saw, told us, that the leaders will reject Him. Jesus quotes Scripture after Scripture about His death. And thus, it is written, they hated Me without a cause. Or he quotes Zechariah 13 saying to his disciples that night, you will all fall away because of me this night. Because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And it's just, okay. They're foretold about what exactly is going to happen hundreds of years before they happen. Let me just add one more. Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny knowing Me three times. So, here's the point. What do we do with prophecies about the future that has not happened yet? Let me just... I don't know how else to deal with it, but other than this. God is omniscient. There's nothing that will happen, and He shows it through prophecies, that He does not know fully and exactly how things will unfold. Right? And yet He's God. He did not prevent these things. 
Now, we've got an option. Somehow, because he was not powerful enough to prevent them. Or, he willed to not prevent them. Which is another way of saying, he willed that they happen. And therefore, God included in His plan of salvation Judas's betrayal. He included that the leaders would reject Him prophesying beforehand the stone that the builders rejected. Or we see in our text, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking to put God the Son to death. He included that Jesus, these are the prophets, would be hated. He would be denied three times. He would be condemned. He would be spit upon. He would be slugged. He would be whipped. And He would be pierced and nailed to a cross and killed. And all these sinful acts were known by God before they ever happened. God knew they would happen and chose not to prevent them. And thus they happened according to His sovereign will. They didn't just happen. They were prophesied. And all of this horrendous sin and the conspiracy of the murder of Jesus got kicked off this way. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him. Okay, but now, beyond just drawing logical inference, from the reality that God foreknows what will happen and prophesied it through His prophets. Beyond that, the Bible is explicit that God Himself planned these things. That God Himself mysteriously brought them to pass. 700 years beforehand, he puts in the heart, in the mouth, in the pen of Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on Jesus who will come the iniquity of us all. So, behind the spitting and the slugging and the whipping and the nails is the invisible plan of God. The 
reason I could say that without falling down in fear right now. Because that is exactly how the Apostle Peter preached it in the first sermon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, in the middle of his sermon, Peter declares, and you've got to understand, this is only about a month and a half after all these things. In Jerusalem, he's declaring it. In the temple, he's declaring it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. A few weeks later, when the early disciples are gathered together after they were beaten for refusing the command to not preach in Jesus' name, they gathered together and they corporately prayed. And Luke records it, not saying, well, their theology was off. He recorded it in chapter 4, verse 27 to 28. For truly, Father, In this city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed. Who was gathered together? Sinners. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. We already know that. Here's their prayer. There, These peoples were gathered together to murder Jesus. This is how they say it. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So it wasn't just a passive allowance for those things to take place. But it was the hand of God to fulfill the plan of God that He predetermined before He ever created anything. This explains What Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 53, verse 10, 700 years beforehand. Yet, this is clearly referring to the death of Jesus. Yet, it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. He, God, has put Him, Jesus, to grief. The Lord crushed the Savior and killed Him. In other words, behind, above, Outside of time and space is the transcendent God. And so behind the betrayal 
of Judas, the mockery of Herod and his party, and the cowardice of Pilate, and the mock trial of the Sanhedrin, and the fist and the spit and the thorns and the nails and the whippings. Behind it all was Jesus' eternal Father who loved Him. Why would He do it? Just read the rest of verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. (sighs) He'll rise. And He did. He shall see His offering. He shall prolong forever His days. This really matters. Because if God were not the ultimate actor in the death of Jesus, then the death of Jesus could not save anybody. The very reason that the death of Christ is at the heart of the Gospel is precisely because God is doing it. how Paul said it in Romans 3. I mean, it's Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But God has done it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, God condemned sin. In the flesh. God condemned our sin in Jesus' flesh. He bore our condemnation. As a result, what's the first verse of Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God did it. Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God cursed Jesus. He took the penalty, the curse of breaking His law and imputed it to His Son. That's why He was betrayed. Ultimately, that's why nails went through Him by sinful men. And that's the greatest news in the world. He bore our curse. As a result, we are free. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. The one who knew no sin. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God imputed our sin to Jesus. And in Him, He punished it. And thus we're free. In Romans 3, 23-25, Paul writes, For all, all persons have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're a believer, you are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen to it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. So that Satan will be damned because he's guilty. All of us are accountable for our sin because we always do what we want to do. And that's what holds us culpable. But no one ever gets the last laugh on God. Satan, Judas, Pilate, Sanhedrin, you in no way thwart, hinder, undo, or prevent God's sovereign, and in this case, saving purposes. Let me close it this way. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to become a human being and to be slaughtered and to rise. He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever in this room wants to be saved from condemnation, so that whosoever will believe shall not perish, but have eternal life. Make sure that's you. Now, so now, for you, you know, that's you. If that's you, I'm going to speak to you as we close. Believer, from the very foundation of the world, God planned to come and to get you. 
and yank you out of eternal damnation and save you to enjoy His glory as a sinner mercied by God and forgiven forever. It wasn't an accident. He planned to come and get you. He is in control. He sent His Son who died as your substitutionary sacrifice and then He sent the message of the Gospel with the Holy Spirit and raised you from the dead. Pulled you out of eternal condemnation. Okay, so then, all the more, know the truth of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Believer, know that you will make it. You cannot not make it. No Satan or demons or pitfalls or betrayals or setbacks that hurt can ever keep you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Paul ends Romans 8. Paul wasn't just saying in Philippians 1.6 there is a deep, robust understanding of the Gospel when he says to every born-again person, I am sure of this. That He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, Got to hear it now. Gotta, I, want, we, I want every believer to really hear it. Because life is hard and your mind can get tormented. This means you, believer, are different than Judas. What we have just seen in the last two minutes, that's the difference between Judas and you. That's the difference between Judas' sin and Peter's sin. Peter sinned, and you and I sin. He failed miserably in denying that he even knew Jesus. And both Judas and Peter sensed a deep regret. But it was different. Peter was truly converted. 
He was a sheep. We see in the Gospels, Jesus prayed for Peter, which guaranteed he would repent truly. And so I just want to say as I close, believer, you are a Peter. You repent. You cling to Jesus and His Word. And so, as I close, I just want to say, in that Gospel security, go on as a believer, obeying 2 Peter chapter 1. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Because if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, Christian, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Lord, we thank You that You have not left the church that You've purchased without Your Word. Without the words that You will gather all whom the Father has given to You, and of them You will lose none of them. And You've not only have left to us the Word, but You've given to us the church, the person, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who works all these things according to Your saving and sanctifying will in the life of Your church. Oh, may we who believe go from here so thrilled and excited in this security, itching to wake up, to make our calling and election sure, to the glory of Your name, to the rest of our souls, and thus to the overflowing fruit 